For our scripture reading today, we'll be continuing in Philippians. If you'd like to follow along in your pew Bible, Philippians 2, 12 through 30. Please follow along as we receive the word of life. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon that I may also be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare, for everyone looks for their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself, because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me, and I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think that it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. So then, welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and honor people like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. May God bless the reading of his word. Will you pray with me? Holy God, your word is life to us. As we consider your word this morning, calm our hearts, quiet in us any anxious voice that has the the tendency to drown out your voice speaking to us today through this word of Scripture. Help us to hear you and to consider your word and will for our lives. We know that no work is too hard for you and that you are present in power We pray this in Jesus, our Lord. Amen. 
Well, we are continuing in a sermon series going through Paul's letter to the Philippians. You find this in the middle of the New Testament. And from the very beginning of this sermon series, we have been encouraging you, if you are so inclined, to open up a Bible and follow along with us. For some of you, that'll be a pew Bible. Others of you, uh, from, from time immemorial, years ago, started bringing your Bible to church. And so you're saying, yes, Pastor Kurt, thank you for giving me permission to, to look at my Bible as we, as we look into Scripture and, and preach. For some of you, your closest Bible might be on your phone. Uh, and Joe, thank you for showing that, that uh, uh, that is, hey, God's word is God's word. And those words come through loud and clear, whether it's on a screen or on a piece of paper or whether those words have been memorized by us. And, and that is an important note to say about Philippians because we're starting to get into the second half of Philippians where there are numerous, like if you were going to come up with the top 10 memory verses of all time, five of them are in the second half of Philippians. So we're just getting started, folks, in this, uh, this beloved letter from the Apostle Paul. But we titled this sermon series, Joyful Synergy. And I know that it was probably a little bit of a, of a question that you might have had, like, where did Pastor Kurt get that title? Uh, for some of us, we are well aware that in Philippians, joy is a theme. Paul, Paul speaks of his joy and encourages us to have joy in the Lord. And that's one of the reasons why Philippians often is uh, a favorite book uh, of the Bible, because it, there's so much mention of joy. Paul speaks of joy. You heard, even in the text today, uh, Paul is emotionally connected to the people he's writing to um, at the heart. The word synergy it turns out, is actually in the Bible verse that Tao just read. And I'm not going to let the cat out of the bag right now. I'm going to let you wait and see uh, with anticipation when we reveal where that word is. But we've been exploring the synergy dimension of the body of Christ and, and the frequent exhortations or encouragements that the Apostle Paul gives to the Philippians to be united, united in Christ, in their faith and belief, being one in spirit and purpose, to, to be cooperative with one another. The children's message focus on teamwork was well-placed. And also with the athletic imagery, because the Apostle Paul uses that, because that was, that was imagery or, or a theme that spoke to the people who lived in Philippi, this Roman colony. We've been using, to explore the synergy dimension, a rowing crew theme. And that's why we have these oars that are up uh, at the base of the cross and uh, all pointing toward the cross. But rowing crew as an example of the cooperative energy that Paul is encouraging the Philippian community to have. So our text today starts immediately following Paul's crescendo in the letter of the Christ hymn that we talked about. It speaks of, of Jesus being exalted after having uh, humbled himself and emptying himself to come and be with us as a human and to die on the cross. But then Jesus, after his death on the cross, was exalted far above any power or authority that at the name of Jesus, everyone should bow and acknowledge his lordship, to the glory of God the Father. 
And here we get to the heart of the cooperative work that Paul is encouraging. And work is the operative term here. In this text, in the English text, we see a repetition of the word work. And whenever we see that word work, it's a Greek word in the New Testament that has a root, and that root are the three letters E-R-G, erg. That is the word that means work. Formally, the word work is ergon in Greek, and I kind of like to think that erg, that the person who, who came up with that word in the Greek language was saying, okay, what sound comes out of your mouth? when you're trying to lift something really heavy or push and pull something. And go ahead and try it right now. Give, it, give us your best erg. Erg, right? You've done it, right? There's some muscle memory there. You remember when you've been really trying to exert some force in a particular direction for a particular purpose. There's erg there. In English, we have a number of words that have erg within it. Uh, the, the whole science of ergonomics, you might have understood this. Uh, it's grown in, in its application, especially those of us who, who work at desks. There are people who are experts in ergonomics in terms of where we sit at our workstation, kind of where our, our head is and our eye level is in relation to our screen, uh, where our, our, uh, what our posture is as we're at our desks, and that's the science of ergonomics, one application of ergonomics. And then there's the word that all of us know, but because there's a soft G, we might not know that there's erg in the middle of it, and that's energy. In Greek, it's energeo, energeo, energy. And also, the word that is the theme for this series, which is synergy. Work together. Now, rowing is hard work. But, as I've learned from our resident experts, Harrison and Kayla King, who both uh, competed in rowing crew in college, uh, when a rowing crew is working in cooperation with each other, it's less hard work. When you are not synced up, when you're at cross purposes, the work is a lot harder. Paul introduces work into the context of the Christian life. And the proliferation in this text of words with erg in it help us understand that there's significant effort involved in the Christian life. So our first point that we get to in this text from Philippians 2 is that God's energy drives our faith work. This is something that we need to see right away, that the first mention of work here is our work. And yet it's not our work only, we're not alone in this, but God is working as well at the same time. A point that we need to get to right at the beginning is that the primary synergy that Paul is talking about in Philippians is a synergy between our work or actions and God's work and actions. That those are happening in cooperation with each one of us, but also between God and God's, God's Spirit and the church, the body of Christ. There's divine energy in the motions and in the emotions of Christian community. 
So in scripture, we read these words. Therefore, verse 12, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Now, some of us who have been uh, marinating in Reformed theology for years, we get a little bit nervous here. Because, like, we sang a song early on that, that said, like, like, the work of God is finished, right? There's no more work for us to do to make ourselves right with God, to gain salvation. That's a gift of grace. And that's absolutely true. And the person par excellence who lets us know that is none other than the Apostle Paul. We are saved by grace, through faith, not by our works, lest anyone should boast. Boast in anyone except Jesus. And yet, the Apostle Paul is also the presenter par excellence of our need to exert effort in the life of Christ. The whole idea of, okay, Jesus paid the price, did all of the work, and now we don't do anything is just not the gospel. It's not scriptural. In fact, you, if you come to that conclusion, you basically just cancel out half of the New Testament, and actually most of the Old Testament too, because we're invited into partnership with God. God's work, God's good purposes, he does the work of saving us, of forgiving our sins, of making us right with God so that we can join God in God's work. And that work is mission work, absolutely. It's work in ministry within the church of caring for one another. It's also work that we don't often think of as work, but some of the words used in Greek are work words. Prayer is work. Think about what you're not doing if you're not praying. That's the work we're being called to. Also, worship is work. That's what we're doing right now. So when we look at uh, Philippians 2 and we see this phrase, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. What is that? In Greek, it's kat erg ezomai, which means to work at something in order to accomplish a task. There's something going on within the church. Uh, this, this, what Paul is calling salvation it is what God is about. It's, you can equate it to God's good purposes within us. There's something that we are called to, to engage in. But we're called to engage it not with our own energy only, but with God's energy, energeo, an activity that makes an impact or a cause that leads to an effect. It's actually used twice in this passage, in this verse 13, actually. It's translated, energeo is translated as work. It is God who works within you. But also act. To act in order to fulfill God's good purpose. So this verse is filled with God's energy, and that's precisely the point, is that we as the community of Christ, as the followers of Christ, we are filled with God's energy to do the work 
toward God's good purposes that God has called us to. So we do work, but we don't do work just on our own, through our own power, but we are empowered by God. God is present in the midst of our lives, but primarily here, Paul's speaking to a community that God is working in us, among us. It's God's power at work. So when I was studying this text and and saw this, this overwhelming presence of work words in the text and the Greek root of erg, that word erg reminded me of something. And I thought, man, when I had that conversation with Harrison and Kayla, I had an initial conversation with them about rowing crew uh, up here on the stage when no one was in here during a worship rehearsal. And, and I had this vague sense that I'd heard the word erg before. And it just so happens that the, the trainer... The machine that, that, if you're a competitive rower, that you would train on is called, for short, an erg. And, and for good purpose. Because, because it is where you put your work in to train. And by the way, you know, we focused a lot on the beauty of the togetherness of a crew rowing together in sync. And we should, well, we should, on a placid lake. It's some of the most beautiful scenes you'll ever see. But rowing crew is also one of the sports that puts in the most work. There's a lot of erg going on with people in rowing. And in fact, I I was looking up on YouTube some examples of this, and I happened upon a, uh, a video that was actually filmed by one of Kayla's teammates with the Gonzaga crew, the women's crew at Gonzaga. And, and it was like a video of what it was like to be on the crew. And it started out in early morning when it was O Dark Hundred. And they all went to a, a large room that had how many erg machines were in that room? Like 50 machines. And every one of them, a girl is, is on the oar, basically, and just going crazy. Like, when you see that video you kind of wonder, how come we don't connect these rowing crew training sessions into the electric grid, you know, to seriously generate electricity? Like, we're missing out on something there. And maybe some compensation for those who are putting in that work. I learned from Kayla that, that in addition to just putting in the work of training with those erg machines, that they'd also be mounted on slides and then put uh, kind of in a row so you'd get the kind of the on-water feel of rowing with others. And that's how you would work on your kind of cooperation skills, uh, especially during harsh winters. This is training to get in sync, working with synergy. We see it in rowing crew. We see it in sports, other aspects of life. And it is the vision that Paul is giving us here about cooperative actions in the church. But there's a deeper truth. And the deeper truth is this, that God is empowering that work. That good purpose that God is is exerting a cause and effect on, is our cooperation with one another 
so that the gospel will be advanced. So that when we share with people, hey, here's who Jesus is, that they'll look at the church and say, well, Jesus must be pretty kind because you're pretty kind to each other as a church. Paul is encouraging that togetherness. Synergy, one of the aspects of the word synergy is that, is it, that it's more than the sum of its parts. And here's where the synergy really makes sense, is that it's not just that in our own power, we're just a bunch of good people, and you put us all together, and we're just one really good group. It's that when we get together, there's a power working in that that makes it so much more than the sum of its individual parts, and that is God's Spirit working in us and among us. It's true, we are not saved by our works, but they matter. In fact, we're called to our works. One of these works is, uh, is the work of prayer, like I mentioned. And in honor of the 20th anniversary of Renewal Ministries Northwest, I want uh, to share and just give a shout-out that may remind some of you of work that you've done with Renewal Ministries, and that is the Ignatian Spiritual Exercises that many have learned from Denise and Diana uh, in that, that training in prayer. These are exercises. These are, this is effort that we put into in the life of faith, and we can grow and expand. We can be trained in this. We can grow deeper. And I encourage you, if you, if you hear now a call to grow deeper in the life of faith, there are practices, there are exercises that we can grow in as we allow God to work in us and through us toward his good purposes. And one kind of connection that brings it all together with the crew imagery is uh, that one of the people I've read who has taught me about Ignatian spiritual exercises is a former college rower turned uh, college professor at Boston College. His name is Tim Muldoon. And he wrote a book called The Ignatian Workout, Daily Spiritual Exercises for a Healthy Faith. And in that book, he brings his kind of examples of training as a member of a crew. I think he, he rode for Boston College. And, and he brings that into the teaching on the Ignatian prayer practices. Sometimes prayer means you get up at O Dark Hundred. Okay, so there's work for us to do. We're being called into this cooperative activity empowered by God. God is doing work here. But Paul brings up something that might happen in our community, in our life together, that might undermine the work of God. It's possible for a different energy to be operating in human community. And this is energy that works at cross-purposes to God's purposes, energy that undermines. Just as a note, you know, in crew, I, I was reminded as, as I've read in the, the book Boys in the Boat, uh, that, that all is not smooth sailing for a crew. And sometimes crew members are not in sync. And sometimes that 
really impacts performance. Uh, author Daniel James Brown describes this situation when, when rowers were not in sync with each other, putting their hopes for victory in serious jeopardy. Uh, he writes this, All at once, collectively and almost in unison, the rowers lost their cool. They flailed at their oars, some digging them too deep in the water, others too shallow, out of time with one another, and then angry and desperate to catch up, they lost all semblance of form and faded And this can happen to us when we contribute energy that is negative in the form of grumbling and arguing. Paul continues, verse 14, Do everything without grumbling and arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. Grumbling is spoken of four times in the New Testament, gongitsimos. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament, this is the word that's used to describe the Israelites who grumbled in the Sinai Desert. You might recall that story of the Israelites upset with Moses and letting him know about it. And then Moses getting upset with the people who were upset about him. And letting them know about it. And letting God know about it. And then arguing. Which is actually the root word for dialogue. Dialogismos. And in the Old Testament, that word is used in a positive and a negative way. But in the New Testament, it's always negative. And so that's why we know to translate that arguing. It's, a, it's an antagonistic attitude. It's when people insist on their own way and go toe-to-toe to battle it out. Has that ever happened in the church? So, a number of years ago, I remember uh, seeing on the news a report. Uh, it was a report on uh, a, a press conference held by the mayor of the city of Seattle, who shared that there was going to have to be a great expenditure in upcoming years on the waterfront in Seattle. Because, basically, the seawall... In, on which there's, uh, uh, in which there's a lot of timber, um, that that is being, has been deteriorated significantly by the work of gribbles. And I asked myself, what's a gribble? First of all, it's a very comical name. It reminds me of that Star Trek Trouble with Tribbles thing. So it kind of, it makes me laugh. Actually, if you would see, these are very, very small, uh, one to four millimeters in length, these gribbles. Uh, and... They, in a microscope, they look cute. Like, I don't often think of those tiny little things looking cute, but like, immediately when I looked up what a gribble was, I thought, I thought of the deteriorating impact of gribbles, and I seriously thought of writing a children's book called The Grumbling Gribbles. <laughs> the alliteration is perfect there, isn't it? But you know, the connection between grumbling and gribbles is great because the, a gribble is a marine isopod, one to four millimeters, and their thing that they do better than anything else is to bore into wood, submerged underwater. And they cause a lot of uh, destruction to marine timber structures like jetties and piers. Grumbling 
in the church can have a similar effect as gribbles have. Undermining, and kind of like under the waterline, more so than we can recognize on the surface, deteriorating, and really kind of weakening the work that God is doing in the church. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his theological classic, Life Together, in the first section, he talks about the beauty of the, hum- of the Christian community. And to not take the Christian community for granted. You know, here's one who, in his life, for a significant period of time before uh, his martyrdom, he lived alone, imprisoned. And this was years before when he was teaching uh, people about Christian community. He said, don't take your brothers and sisters in Christ for granted because there are some people in this world who don't have them and have no access to them. They're alone. But it doesn't take him long to start talking about complaining. And in fact, I think Life Together by Bonhoeffer is the theological treatment of complaining in the church. He writes this, And if, on the contrary, we only keep complaining to God that everything is so miserable and so insignificant and does not at all live up to our expectations... Then we hinder God from letting our community grow according to the measure and riches that are there for us all in Jesus Christ. God's pouring that power into the church, and yet we are just convinced that our best effort is to complain. And here is where, like, I'm going to just be honest with you about a trap I walked into. One of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's great theological traps, which I bless him for. Uh, so what happens at this point when we talk about complaining in the church is those of us like pastors or other lay leaders in the church who, who are kind of responsible for leading and guiding the church, we say, amen, Bonhoeffer. The complaining that I see in the church. <laughs> and then you keep on complaining about the complaining in the church. So here's what Bonhoeffer says right after he says what I just read. He says, that also applies in a special way to the complaints often heard from pastors and their zealous parishioners about their congregations. (laughs) Touche. So it impacts all of us. You know, we're all called to, to recognize that grumbling and arguing, when we find ourselves in that place, we're in rough water indeed. Because when we are engaged in that, we're expending a lot of energy. We're actually doing a lot of work. And our work of complaining and, and, <clears throat> and of grumbling causes others more work. And all of that work is not connected to God's powerful good work that his work is directing us toward. It's diverting us away from that. This is something that can happen. And so we are called to work with synergy as cooperative co-workers. The Apostle Paul says, if you, in a sense, choose God's way, if you are one with others in spirit and purpose... If you recognize that this is the work that God is is empowering among you, and you say no to the temptation to grumble and argue, that you will shine. You will shine 
like stars in the midst of the world. And then Paul goes on to share the names of two stars. Stars in the Philippian church. Not because they were the people who called attention to themselves or argued for their positions the loudest, but because Paul's using them as, as examples to emulate. These are stars. I hope in the Lord Jesus, verse 19, to send Timothy to you soon. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. He has served with me in the work, ergon, of the gospel. And then Paul goes on in verse 25, but I think it necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. He almost died for the work of Christ, the ergon of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not, weren't in the position to give me. Paul gave shout-outs to people all over his letters. Have you ever gotten kind of tired of Paul? If you've walked the Christian life for a while, sometimes you just get a little bit, you know, a little bit upset at some of the ways that Paul might put things. You kind of ask yourself, why did people put up with this guy? It's because he loved the church. He knew their names. He prayed for them. And he was so connected with them at the heart. He knew about Timothy and that Timothy showed genuine concern for God's people. And he knew Epaphroditus, that Epaphroditus risked his life, which in fact is really what Paul's been doing all along. He cares. And people recognize that. And Paul gives these people, later on in the, in the, the letter, he's going to introduce us to two women, Euodia and Syntyche in chapter 4, who he names by name. And Timothy and Epaphroditus and Euodia and Syntyche, he calls them by a word, co-worker, co-worker. What is the word for co-worker in Greek? Synergos, synergy. In English, if we directly took it from Greek, being a teammate or a co-worker would be being a synergist. Friends, you and I are called by God to be synergists, co-workers. Paul often speaks of co-workers, not only as his co-workers, but co-workers with Christ. Companions. What these real life examples exhibit is genuine concern on the part of Timothy, someone who set aside his own interests to focus on the interests of others and the interests of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Epaphroditus was one who was willing to be sent to meet others' needs. Where does he stand in terms of like his self centeredness? protection of himself, well, he risked his own life for others. 
Both of them allow themselves to be woven into what I would call a tapestry of teamwork and meshed with others at the heart level. Timothy's was a familial faithfulness. Paul talks about him as being like a son to a father. And Epaphroditus' gift is empathy. There's so much emotional connection here within this body. You know, one final illustration from Rowing Crew is I've heard it over and over again from reading, but also from Harrison and Kayla in their experience of, of Rowing Crew, is that teamwork dimension. When things are clicking, when people are focused together in a particular direction for a common purpose, there's nothing like it. There's nothing like it. And some people might have that experience and, and look far and wide the rest of their lives and have a hard time finding that. You know where they should find it? Right here. All the time. All the time. Even with our faults and failures, it's just every day is just another opportunity to exhibit God's grace with one another. So, God's energy drives our faith work. God is working among us. And while grumbling undermines God's good work, God has the power to transform our work of synergy and turn us into synergists, cooperative co-workers who live into God's good purposes together. Amen.